Welcome to the Language Mastery Show, a weekly podcast bringing you expert tips for getting fluent anywhere in the world. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. For show notes, visit languagemastery.com forward slash show. Ian Fritz is the author of the new book, What the Taliban Told Me, a nuanced look at what it was like to undertake intensive language training at the Defense Language Institute, or DLI, in not one but two languages, Dari and Pashtu, to serve as an airborne cryptologic linguist in the United States Air Force, and to spy on the Taliban from low-flying gunships. During his two tours in Afghanistan, he eavesdropped on the Taliban for hundreds of hours, shared intelligence with various special forces units on the ground, and, according to official records, totaled 123, quote, insurgents EKIA, or enemies killed in action. But the more conversations he heard below, the more conflicted he became about his job, the war, the killing, and even his desire to continue living himself. His increasing linguistic fluency and cultural familiarity had humanized the enemy. It created a moral injury that Ian feared would never heal. In the interview, we talk about Ian's experience learning languages at DLI, his experience as an airborne cryptologic linguist, what he would do differently if he started learning a new language from scratch, and his best tips for beginner and intermediate language learners. All right, without no further ado, enjoy my conversation with Ian Fritz. I am joined today by Ian Fritz, who is the author of a new book, which I just got my hands on, What the Taliban Told Me, which is a fascinating read. I sadly did not get all the way through the book before we talked today, but almost, I think about two thirds, which I really enjoyed. So you were formerly an airborne cryptologic linguist. Let's start Mm -hmm. there. What the heck is that? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's a, a very fancy name that the Air Force came up with for linguists, people who've learned other languages who fly aboard various aircraft that the Air Force owns and operates throughout the world. And I know that one of the things in the Air Force, and I think probably in all armed forces, is there's a lot of alphabet soup. <laughs> and and one of the names for, I guess, the most common name that other people refer to you as or refer to yourself as is a Dizzo? Is that right? What What is that? Yeah. So we, there are, like I said, there are a lot of different aircraft. Um, the most common one that, like, if you were to just Google airborne cryptologic linguist, you would see come up uh, something called a more alphabet suit, the RC-135 or the rivet joint or the RJ, which is a, a very large, like, 747 type big plane, big spy plane. Uh, and that's what the majority of airborne cryptologic linguists fly on in the Air Force. There's a smaller subset uh, that fly on Air Force Special Operations Command planes. So those are called direct support operators or DISOs. And that's the job that I did. Um, It's not like the training, most of the training is the same. The language training is all the same between someone who flies uh, river joint or someone who flies on the planes that I flew on. But the mission set changes uh, depending on what sort of aircraft you're on. And also from the book, I learned that time of day was something I never would occurred to me, but it makes perfect sense the way you explain it, that whether you're flying missions in the daylight or the nighttime makes a huge difference about what the mission set is going to be and therefore mm-hmm. probably what, you know, you end up doing, right? Yeah, specifically in, you know, places where there's war ongoing. If you're kind of wandering around talking to other people at three o'clock in the morning, there's a decent chance you're doing something shady at the very right. least. You know, if you're talking to your buddy at two o'clock in the afternoon, well, yeah, you'd be talking about kind of sort of anything. And so depending on when, yeah, if you're flying at night, there's a decent chance that most of what you're going to hear is stuff that uh, revolves around fighting or revolves around like 
active intelligence mm-hmm. versus if you're flying during the day you, you could hear just all kinds of normal stuff okay so and you were deployed to afghanistan before you went though you went to the defense language institute or dli in the book you said that i think the quote was is probably on the whole the best place in the world to learn a new language tell us why what about the dli makes it so uniquely effective at teaching people languages there's a lot the biggest one i would say is the presence of native instructors so um i never i didn't study you know language in college because i'd already done all of this but you know in lots of places uh you can learn another language from someone who isn't necessarily a native instructor that person could be very good right like at one point in time i probably could have taught somebody the rudiments of farsi but you know there's going to be a lot of nuance that you miss out um there's going to be sort of idiomatic type language, all these sorts of things that most most native speakers don't necessarily have a great handle on. Um, beyond that, it's sort of, it's the rigor of it. So at, at DLI, 99.9% of the population is, you know, in the military actively. There might be a few civilians here and there, but it's on the whole, you know, military institute and people there are in various branches of the military. So you don't have a choice in whether you go to class, right? We, we could, it gets talked about as it is an educational institution, right? But it's not like college where eh, I don't feel good today. Like I'm, you know, or I'm hungover or whatever. I don't feel like going to class. It's your job. And more importantly, it's a job where your employer sort of owns you. And so even if you, maybe you really are sick, you have to go to, you know, sick call and like get someone else to say, no, in fact, you are sick. So you don't have to go to class. So that rigor of just like you absolutely have to go. It's five days a week. And those five days are, it's a full-time job function. It's eight hours a day of class, right? So you have a lunch break somewhere in the middle, but eight hours of class, most days, all eight of which are with native instructors. Some days it's like seven hours. And then you'll have homework on top of that. So probably an hour of homework most nights. And then on the weekends, even longer homework. And so it just becomes like your whole life. It's it's everyone's whole life, right? So I think in other places, you know, if you really want to study something incredibly in depth, but everyone around you doesn't, you have a lot of impetus to be like, yeah, I don't want to do right. this today. So, it's not normalized the same right, way. Right, yeah, that's the yeah. perfect word for it. It's not normalized. Versus DLI, it is normalized to be a giant nerd and <laughs> to just like focus on your language. And b- beyond that, it's also, you know, there's incentive for it from the military. The better you do on your language tests, the more money you get paid. Maybe you get a different job that you're really interested in. All sorts of things like that. I can't say that there's one specific thing about DLI, um, but if I was pressed to the rigor of it, just mm-hmm. the, the nature of the studying that happens there makes it, in my mind, the, the best institution in the world to learn. Because you're, it's, you know, maybe there's a better institution in the world to learn just Chinese or just Arabic or just Spanish or something like that. But to my knowledge, there's no institution that would that allows you to learn all of those plus, you know, an additional 30 languages at the same level. Mm. So is it fair to say that the actual content of the instruction isn't necessarily uniquely good so much as it's the all the things you just talked about, that the the expectation, the normalization, mm-hmm. the fact it's your job, the fact that, you know, you you're basically forced to do it on a daily basis. It's not just when you feel like it. Um, right. Or are there things that are unique, you think, within the actual curriculum and the way that things are taught that are especially effective? Um, I do. I think the. Not necessarily the curriculum, like content-wise, because for instance, right, so I studied um, Dare and then Pashtu, and so studying Pashtu is like 
ludicrously hard actually there's just not a ton of material in the world yeah, i think you said in the book that that at least when you were there probably had the most right. materials or resources in the world for for posture right i mean maybe now there's you know some u.s university that teaches posture, but i mm. kind of doubt it if there is there's like one or two when i was at dli for dari there was i think like one place in the country otherwise that taught dari right plenty of Places teach Farsi, which is very similar, if not the same. But other languages, right? So like Arabic or Chinese or Russian, sort of more global languages, their material is going to be very good, right? Their content. Sure. But the curriculum is that from day one, your instructors are speaking to you 80% of the time in language, regardless of what you understand. They mm. it's sort of they are they are told like it doesn't matter what they understand, that's not the point. And that's if you look at sort of like early language acquisition, or if you look at other types of language acquisition by immersion, that's how it works, right? Kids right. don't learn a language by having someone explain it to them. Right. They learn there is no hearing. language explained to them, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And, and their parents, you know, like I, I can't teach somebody English, not well anyway. Yeah. Um they're talking to you all the time in language. There are sort of, you know, it's a rule that you're only supposed to speak in your the language that you're learning in the schoolhouse. That's clearly impossible in the beginning of your education because you don't know anything. Like you sure. literally just don't know. But the the emphasis is on you're just hearing it all the time. You're looking at it all the time. I mean, you learn so for Dari or Farsi or Pashto or Arabic, right? It's a it's a non-Latin alphabet. It's an entirely different alphabet. They're all focused around Arabic. And on its face, that is, uh, you know, very challenging because Arabic has 26 letters, uh, Farsi has 30 or 32, but each letter has a different shape or form based on where it is within a word, right? It's beginning mm -hmm. or end. And so you could say, oh, I have to learn, you know, 90 letters. And in a university, you might get a couple of weeks to do that, right? Because you only go to class, you know. Yeah, I went to undergrad at Columbia, which is like a very robust language program, and you still would only go to class for like an hour a day. So that's going to take you some time. At DLI, you are expected to know the entire alphabet and to be able to like at least write the letters within your like three days or something. Wow. Because they're like, no, you're going to look at this, you're going to do this. Because it actually, I mean, if you stay though, that three days, that's 24 hours sure. of studying in theory, right? If that's all you did, that's not all you do. But um, it is very much a, okay, just like we're, we're moving through, we're moving through. And you're not... I knew maybe one person in my class who like kept up a hundred percent, but that's not the goal. The goal is that you maybe keep up like 50% and mm -hmm. over time start doing better than that. Mm -hmm. But from the get go, they're just like, no, you're, you're getting thrown in and you will figure it out. Mm -hmm. So it's the deep end approach, like sink <laughs> yeah. or swim. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned you learned Dari and, and Pashtu. And it, it, I know there's different pronunciations too for mm -hmm. that second language. I, I hope I'm not butchering that. And I know maybe it's like, but Pashtu, Pashtu, I don't know. Yeah, you know better than I do. Um, tell us more about those two languages. Where are they spoken? Who are they spoken by? How much overlap in vocabulary or, or phonetics or anything or history is there between those two? Or are they completely different? I'll start with Dari just because that's the first language I learned. So there is a school of thought, and you can find people who've written about this, that Dari is just like what Westerners decided to call Farsi, uh, the Farsi spoken in Afghanistan. In okay, yeah, right. Because it, it is, that is true, right? So Afghans, when I talk to an Iranian, they think I sound weird. They mostly think I sound like a redneck, right? Sort of like mm. But they understand you, mostly? Oh, 100%. They understand okay. me, yeah. Okay. It's, just, it's it's predominantly an accent. The difference between Got Farsi it. and Bari, to my mind, is the difference between a Brit and a U.S. Oh, American. interesting. Is that So it's that similar. Okay. I, yeah, it's it's truly an, an accent. And I say like a Brit and an American because, you know, maybe a Brit 
you know, says the loo instead of the bathroom. Sure. So there's an actually different, some vocabulary maybe, but some vocabulary, but but it's minuscule. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's incredibly small. And in large part, that's going to be because so much of the, um, what we always call it upper level. So just sort of more, you know, complex vocabulary. Mm -hmm. It all just winds up coming from Arabic anyway. Right. So as soon as you, when you're reading the news, like I can read an Arabic newspaper and tell you the broad strokes of what's being discussed, even mm-hmm. though I do not know Arabic, because the words are the same. Like they're, they're words that came from Arabic through, you know, the entire history of how people conquer other nations and all these sure. sorts of things. So Dari is, yeah, it's Dari is in theory only spoken in Afghanistan if you assume that Dari is its own language. If you take the less like splitting approach, Dari and Farsi, okay, they're spoken in Iran. And in Afghanistan, um, Tajik is probably functionally the same. It's just written in the Cyrillic alphabet. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, because you'd mentioned in the book that the, another airborne cryptologic linguist that you had gone through DLI with, who, the way you paid him, he's kind of a little bit pretentious, maybe. Uh, but he said, I speak three languages, you know, and he, he listed those right. three different names for the same ostensibly language, right? So, I mean, yeah, because Tajik, once you, if you learn the Cyrillic alphabet, you could read it and like the phonetics wind up being the same, right? Mm-hmm. It's a really complicated and be like, oh, I know that word. That's the word for economics or whatever. Interesting. Um, that, that's the extent of my knowledge about Tajik. So, so Dari is one of the official languages of Afghanistan. It tends to be spoken by Afghans that live in the northern part of the country. Um, tends to. There are plenty of people who live in the southern part who also mm-hmm. speak Dari. Pashto is the other major language spoken in Afghanistan. Uh, it tends to be spoken in the southern part of the country. It also tends to be, well, it is spoken by um members of the Pashtun tribe. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are tons and tons of different tribes in Afghanistan and Pashtuns are, the, I think, still the largest single tribe. And they, there are also a lot of Pashtuns and therefore uh, Pashtu speakers in Pakistan. So you get that. But people, when people think about it, you know, we think about Urdu in Pakistan, not mm-hmm. Pashtun. You know, there are plenty of Pashtu speakers who live in as far as how similar they are, so there's, I have always kind of thrown around the number because I think we were told this and we wound up just repeating it and it feels accurate that uh, as a vocabulary, at the vocabulary level, they're probably 30% similar. Mm. So when I, I learned Pashtu after I learned Dari and I easily knew many, 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 many words. That said, Pashtu has its own words too, right? So mm-hmm. I can say like, Darach which means tree in Dari and plenty of Pashtun speakers are going to understand that that means tree, but they also have their own root for tree, right? Like a wuni is a tree. And so while I maybe knew like a word, I didn't necessarily know the word. Mm. It does. Yeah. yeah. And when you say know the word, it, does that mean that you recognize it when written down, but if you heard it aloud, it sounds totally different or is even phonetically, is it no, pretty they, much the they, same? No, they sound the same, right? It's the same. So it's the same alphabet. Uh, Pashtu has an extra eight letters, I think. A fair mm-hmm. number. The, there's one letter that like technically is five because of the different sounds it makes, but it's functionally one letter. Uh, but Pashtu has, yeah, it, has more, it just has more sounds that don't exist in Dari. Mm-hmm. And so there are certainly words that when I was first learning it, I would hear that I have no idea what's going on because I'm mm-hmm. like, that sound you know um, but otherwise no reading it or hearing it or even saying it so my best friend and i uh we went through Pashtu together after learning dari and yeah from the get-go we could as soon as we learned some pretty basic grammar we could construct a lot of sentences because we would just use dari words mm-hmm. and our teachers would understand us our classmates hated it because they didn't know dari <laughs> so they didn't understand anything we're saying but our teachers would always almost always know what we were talking about yeah, you said uh, there was one teacher, though, that said, I, I see what you're doing, and I hate it. 
<laughs> yeah, because yeah, we would we would use our our he spoke both languages, he spoke Dari and Pashtu, obviously. Mm-hmm. When we were confused about something in Pashtu, we would just ask him in Dari. Mm-hmm. Does that made the most sense? Like they're much more closely related. And he sort of never thought that way. He would always think like English to Pashtu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's amazing that, how those those pairs you you get used to going mm-hmm. certain directions. And even if you have fluency in a language, if you don't have any experience translating it to another, it's like a muscle you, you that's atrophied or has right. been yeah. built, right? You would definitely see like you'd have to think more about it for sure. So these two languages, so you learned Darty first. You talk about in the book how from a <laughs> from a usefulness on the ground perspective in Afghanistan, especially if, you know, dealing with the Taliban, how Dari was not exactly the ideal language for that. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so it goes back basically to geography of what I said earlier, that Dari tends to be spoken in the northern part of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ashtu tends to be spoken in the southern part. It is an unfortunate fact that definitively the majority, if not the vast majority, of members of the Taliban uh, are Pashtuns or speak Pashtu. Maybe they don't identify as a Pashtun tribe member, but they're from an area where there are a lot of Pashtuns. So Dari is very useful, you know, if you are uh, going to work with the government in any meaningful way. If you were, you know, going to be involved in like diplomatic missions or something like that, it would be really quite useful. But if you're trying to figure out what guys are saying in the middle of a fight, uh, you know, 10 to 1 odds that they're speaking Pashto and not Dari. And you'd also mention that even within Pashto, I mean, there's so many different regional variants mm-hmm. of dialects. And there were some missions you'd said that you'd gone on where you really don't know that particular dialect and it's really hard to understand it in real time. You gave some pushback to a commanding officer at one point, right? About how we need to better coordinate which DISOs are going to which areas, right? So that you have the right linguist who knows that particular, or at least is more familiar with that particular flavor of Fashtu. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So some of that is, you know, experience of, I worked with people who had previously flown on other aircraft. So they had spent a lot of time, you know, listening, doing longer missions and things like this. So they would spend many hours listening to people speaking in those other areas, right? Somewhere in like in Khost or in Kanar or Nagarhar even. It gets very regionalized very quickly. And so you know you would want someone who can understand that to go over there and do that listening. Uh, and then you know alternatively Pashtu linguists don't speak Dari. And so if you go up north and you know guys are speaking Dari, then you would send me or you would send my best friend because we could understand that too. And then sometimes, you know, it's unavoidable and you would just say, well, no, we have to go here and kind of maybe no one feels extra comfortable and you just flip a coin and say, well, okay, it's going to be me, I guess, and I'll figure it out. So as I was reading the book, which I really, really enjoyed, I'm not just blowing smoke, it was it was actually really fun reading. Your your view definitely evolves. I mean, your, your view of yourself as a human, uh, your view as, you know, what it means to be a linguist, uh, how languages work, how the languages affect the brain and your in your view of the world, and also your view, I think, of military, of armed forces, of the Air Force, of the U.S. involvement in the war there. Give us, from your own point of view, like, what what was that journey? I mean, where, where did you start and then where did you end up in terms of your view? <laughs> I know it's a big conversation, but of your evolution, both as a, a linguist, a human, and a member of the armed forces. Okay, conveniently for all three of those, I started out very naive. I grew up hearing other languages spoken. My mother spoke other languages, and, but I, I never learned anything uh, useful as until I joined the military. I you know, took French in high school, but I didn't do anything. So learning, I'll start there and learning lang- learning another language, learning two other languages in my case. There are all sorts of you know aphorisms about this and different people say different people said it, but there's this general consensus, I think, in like sort of world folklore that learning another language is to like functionally gain another soul or to gain another spirit or something. 
And I, that is very true in my experience. If you really become fluent in another language, you have to learn how to think differently. And that's beyond the like, you know, subject object verb order that different languages have. Sure, okay, you could say that's thinking differently, but really knowing it means you're thinking differently about how you express yourself, about how you see things in the world, even like color, right? Russians see blue differently, better than you and I see blue maybe. All these sorts of things that will will necessarily change you in some form or fashion. For me, that changed me a lot as a human um, because what I wound up doing with that language was listening to other humans uh, talk about fighting for the most part. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I wound, I was rather, I was told I was going to hear them talking about fighting all the time. And there's a world where that was true. And I have people who I used to know work with for that was, that was true for them because of the types of missions that they did, the job that they did. They only ever heard fighting. Okay. I happened to fly during the day, like we were talking about earlier. And so I heard a lot of generic, just bullshit, like tons of bullshit. Right. And listening to people bullshit is, is it's pretty good for your language learning. Not mm-hmm. gonna lie. Try it sometimes if you're trying to learn another <laughs> language, listen to people just like shoot the shit. Mm-hmm. But uh, it also means you're hearing people who are supposed to be your enemy, just talking about like day-to-day stuff. And over time, if you do that for long enough, like I did, I think it becomes very hard to say, oh, well, you know, that person is necessarily bad. Mm. It's hard um, to other somebody you've heard, you know, talk about lunch, maybe. Yeah, it, it gets very hard to other them. Um, yeah. it, also, you know, in my case, they, they are still other for sure, because I could be listening to that dude talk about lunch and half an hour later, that guy could be shooting at Americans. and like, right. okay, yeah, that's not a good dude. Sure. Um, but the reasons that he's shooting, like, are maybe a lot more complicated than good or bad. Which goes to the, the you know, third part of the question of like a member of the military. I think it becomes much easier to fight in any sort of war when you can have that very explicit binary of yeah. good guys, bad guys. Yeah. You know, and when I joined the military, I had that. I, I grew up, you know, I was in seventh grade when 9-11 happened. So I really kind of grew up in a post-9-11 world where I had mm-hmm. any sort of consciousness of what was going on. And in the training I got and I worked in special operations, which is very gung-ho, which they have to be by the nature of their work. You know, it's Taliban are bad guys. They're bad guys, we're going to shoot them, we're going to kill them. They're bad dudes. Taliban are still bad dudes. I'm not going to argue that ever. Um, Taliban as an entity, as an organization, is like a stain upon the face of the earth. But individual dudes in the Taliban can be just like guys who got coerced into working. Mm-hmm. They can also be like fanatical, fanatical, crazy people who just like absolutely want to subjugate other humans. Fine. Right. Throw but acid in like, girls' faces. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Throwing acid in girls' faces, destroying schools. You, if you're a girl in Afghanistan right now, you still can't get education. So it's time yeah. it took that, right, two years, no education. But plenty of them, their, you know, cousin made a bad deal and the Taliban came and said, hey, you're going to work for us or we're going to kill your cousin. Yeah. Or you're going to work for us or we're going to steal all the crops that you're growing or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. And like that guy winds up joining a bad cause and for sure winds up, you know, fighting Americans that I'm working for, people who I care about. And like, I'm going to I'm gonna hurt that guy if I have to. Or I'm going to contribute yeah. to the hurting of that guy if I have to. But I can't walk away from that and be like, oh, I absolutely just like killed a bad dude. I can walk away from that and say, oh, well, I just absolutely killed a dude. And like you lose that adjective and everything changes. Yeah. Which again, to the power of language, right? I mean, yeah, the thing that comes to mind right now as you're talking about this, and I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but there was the particular case where there are those three men in the field who Mm -hmm. 
from your perspective, I mean, you got, you have the cameras and then you're listening and you sound like they're just maybe farming, right? They're just, it's not clear, maybe hundred percent if there's something nefarious or not, but the, was it J, I forget the, the term for the JTAC uh, yeah. operator. They were pretty sure that they're doing something nefarious. You're like, well, from my point of view, I think they're just farming. The decision was made to, to fire. Is it a Griffin? I think, uh, yeah. missile at them. Uh, and then one was killed, one was injured. And then I, I forget the exact details anyway. And then there was a decision, are we going to fire again, right? To kill all three. And you're like, no, I think they're just trying to go save this guy. I, I don't think this is actually a, the, what we thought it was. To my mind, that really cr- crystallized this level of nuance and difficulty of deciding who good, who bad. Mm. So you and I now talking now, years later, how how have you sort of come to... I'm sorry, we're saying it's really hard to talk about this stuff, isn't it? Um, human lives, right? Do you feel like on the whole that you were on the side of good, if you had to put it that way? Mm, I didn't like to to escape any culpability I have. I'm perfectly fine admitting like I killed a bunch of people. Yeah. If you zoom out and say, was I on the side of good as far as the US was doing in Afghanistan? Yeah. Almost certainly not, right? I just read look back there, the Afghanistan papers. Right. 20 years, it's just lies and lies and lies and lies and lies and lies. Maybe there was a good reason to go in. There was a good reason to go in. Some of them was there and 9-11 had happened. Fine. But shy of like the first year and a half after that, it was a lot of a lot of people very high level lying about what was happening. Mm. And that doesn't mean that like me and people, you know, at my level, even people above me are necessarily doing something bad because we're operating under the assumption that right. Right, we have been told that we are doing something good. So I think, right, this gets into a weird philosophical debate of like, are you a Kantian? Are you a utilitarian? Like, what do sure. you think <laughs> But my intentions were certainly not bad. Yeah. Um, and I think the intentions of most people I worked with were not bad. Mm-hmm. For me, I don't think that means that I necessarily affected very much good. Mm. The good that I do feel that I affected is I, I did save lives here and there. And for the most part, the people I killed, it was relatively evident that they were at least trying to kill other people. Sure. Right. And you get further into the moral calculus of like, what's an American life worth versus what's an Afghan life worth? And like, I'm not here to. Yeah. Don't want to see that math. Right. Those. Uh, yeah. And you <laughs> yeah. don't want to see, even if you, if you found somebody who would give you that math, you don't really want to hear it. Right. But I can, I mean, it's, it's functionally at the end of the day, it's some sort of tribalism of like, well, I care about the Americans like more than I care about the Afghans. Sure. I just do in that moment. And so my personal actions, I err on the side of like, it wasn't that good because I feel that I, I still feel to this day that I have to somehow um, correct or tone for that, mm. even though that's not actually possible. Mm. The war in Afghanistan was not a good thing in any way. Mm. How much of that do you think led to writing the book? I mean, you also mentioned there kind of, as you started writing there was that folder on your system up on the airplane, right? That was called, I think, Dizzo Poetry or something like that. And so you started writing that as sort of a form of CBT, right? Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Mm-hmm. How much of this book for you was kind of a, a form of CBT, you think? It's hmm. a good question. Um, I mean, I, so I, I was asked to write the book. My, hmm. It's sort of a longer story, but functionally, the, the short version is my agent asked me to write this book. I will say it wound up being therapeutic. Um in that I was able to concretize, I think, thoughts that I've probably been having for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right, so the book stemmed from something that absolutely was therapeutic, which is that I wrote an essay 
And that essay was published in the Atlantic, which is like why the book exists. That essay was purely therapeutic. Afghanistan was reverting back to control under the Taliban. I had a lot of feelings about that. I had even way more feelings about my feelings about that and it didn't have to do with them. And for me, the only way I could figure that out was just write them down. And I only wrote them down for myself. And like, I talked to my partner about them. And then that sort of was like, okay, well, maybe other people need to hear this. If the book is therapeutic, that's probably why I think is that if other people need to hear it, um, military people, non-military people, whoever, I don't necessarily think that what I did is all that important or that I am all that important because I'm not. But I think for humans in general, understanding why fighting happens and that it is significantly more complicated than we are usually told yeah. is very important as evidenced by current world events. Right. Right. Yeah. And maybe I'm biased as a linguist myself. I mean, different kind of linguist, but I, I think the the depth in which you can get to with a language into a culture, being able to, I think, explore it, you know, as close as you can to it, sort of an on the ground way and, and to humanize people. And as you already talked about, that even the worst jihadist, they are still a human. Maybe they're a bad human. Maybe they've done awful things. But I found that the level of nuance that you brought in the book just was was really endearing and allowed me as somebody who's never been to that part of the world or, or been in a war zone to just kind of as close as one can to vicariously at least understand. I mean, there's obviously I will never feel it the way you have or other service people have. But uh, I do think I wanted to bring up <laughs> in the book, you talked about this sort of rant that you like to go on talking about Texas Stan and Audi Sarabia, <laughs> sort of as an analogy to talk about potentially our involvement there and what it would be like if the roles were reversed. Can you talk a bit about what, what that concept was? Yeah. The the Texas and Audi Serbia thing is like the, the most apt way I can make, I think most Americans understand it. Right. So if we look at Texas, it has this long, you know, storied history of like, we are Texans and we will protect our land. And right. There are lots of gun rights there and you mm -hmm. have like staunch conservatism there. Right. Warrior and, culture or ethos. Warrior culture or pro professed warrior culture, what have you, not maybe all that different from Afghanistan. You take a comparable other country, right? Audi Arabia, which is 100% Saudi Arabia. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, very, very wealthy country, right? That uh, mm -hmm. in most cases have a lot of oil money. And, you know, Audi Arabia decides, I'm going to go into Texas Stan because I know that there was a bad dude in Texas Stan. I couldn't quite get that bad dude, but uh, now I'm going to change this entire place. And if, invade the sovereign entity. Invade the sovereign yeah. nation and say, bye bye the government. Um, we got rid of you. The government was bad. Fine. Totally, totally valid. Not a good government. Corrupt government. Mm -hmm. Very bad. Um, bye bye. We're going to set up a new one and it's going to look exactly like ours. Mm. Right. So if, if you drop the analogy and you say that Saudi Arabia were to go into Texas and say, Hey, you're going to become an Islamic state now. Right. Which is not necessarily all that different from America going to Afghanistan and saying, Hey, you're going to become a democracy now when that's just like not how it's worked for a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to choose who's in charge, right? So you're going to, you know, you get to vote, but we're only going to give you a couple of options. And maybe at the beginning, we're not even going to let you vote, right? We're just going to install a guy. Uh, and then the biggest comparison for me for Texas and Afghanistan was guns. So this is a huge deal in Afghanistan. Mm. It was a constitutional right that you're allowed to have guns. Like you mm. are, because that's, they've been fighting since basically forever. Right. Um, in, in livable history since the Soviet invasion back right in the 70s and 80s. And there are tons of guns in Afghanistan. Right. If I rolled up in Texas and I said, yeah, you can have guns, 
But if I come into your house at three o'clock in the morning and there's guns there, I'm going to call you a bad dude and I'm going to blow up your house. That'd be ridiculous because like, yeah, Texans have guns. Like, okay, sure. Right. right. And they're allowed to. You say that they're allowed to, but then you you have this like actual rule or law and then you just start saying, yeah, but that rule and. That mm-hmm. rule and like, here's the exception, here's the exception. And then suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. And so you get an entire nation of people who maybe aren't the, on the side of the insurgency, right? Like to say that every Afghan source of Taliban is ludicrous. It's probably not even a majority of them. But probably a majority of Afghans could say, well, hey, man, like you said I'm allowed to do this. Yeah. Then you show up to in the morning and I'm not allowed to do this. What's that about? Since that time, because I know this was a framework that you, you came up while you were deployed. And I think some of your crewmen didn't, as you talk about the book, didn't necessarily appreciate it or, or want to hear it. When you talk about things this way now, do you feel the same kind of pushback from certain corners or are people more receptive to this this framing it's a good question i mean i don't i don't really talk to it about to that many people about it right mm. so that, that maybe will change now i'm talking to you about it it might change as the book is coming out but i think i can probably comfortably say that on the national level it's different right so if you if you look near yeah 20 years ago right invasion of iraq in 2003 there was sort of just like like we're going to do this i'm sure you know a lot of this is complicated by like free internet versus free twitter versus all these sorts of things but mm. I think that on the whole, you had a fairly large, a widespread acceptance of like, okay, we're going to go invade Iraq and like, that's going to happen. And then if you look at what's happening right now with Israel and Gaza, you see a lot more of like, whoa, now. Right. You see a lot more people. And is it, is it whataboutism? Is it more relativism? Mm. Or is it more of just like, well, you guys said certain things were true for a really long time and then maybe they weren't so true. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that like on a large scale of the conversation, if it hasn't moved sort of towards embracing that sort of thing, it hasn't, it's not possible to like keep those sorts of opinions quiet anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. There's platforms for it. And I there's think platforms for it. Yeah. And, and there's a general skepticism, I think on, on both <laughs> the left and the right, right. Of institutions, which I think is higher than, than ever. Yes. I mean, certainly. And that, that is, you know, that is a politicized skepticism, but it is uh, apolitical insofar as yeah, everybody has it about something. Yeah. 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 It's, it's weird times. So bring it back to languages a bit. Now, what did you learn both in the DLI being deployed? And then even since then, I don't know if you've learned other languages, but what have you learned in, during all of that, that you want to impart to those listening because most of my audience are they're language learners of uh, various stripes what kind of advice what what it what do's and don'ts can you share with them on how best to go from zero to fluent in a language figure out how to go to DLI but uh, or <laughs> so, if you have a lot of money you can go to the um uh used to call the Monterey Institute of International Studies it has a slightly different name now but it's there's a school there's a public school or a non-military school just like down the street from DLI oh I didn't realize that Cool. Yeah, it's run by it's uh it's now owned and run by Middlebury. Uh, oh yeah, Mon- right. Of course, of course. I actually do. Yeah. Yes, I think it might be the Middlebury Institute of International Studies now. Yes, uh, yes, that sounds familiar now. Yep. Yeah, they they have a lot of the same instructors, and as my knowledge is that it's like pretty much the same rigor as DLI. I don't think they have like year long courses that would be an absurd amount of money. Do you know they if do. it's because Middlebury, the one in Vermont, it's like no English immersion like you sign a pledge that you will not right yeah the same, I, you know my it's got to be very very similar because we were always told that it's just civilian dli mm. so you know there would be people who were maybe in the military but who are going to wind up in 
let's say more human oriented roles, they might go learn at NIS, which is what we always called it, Modern Institute, um, mm. because there was less focus on like military type conversation, right? Gotcha. So we had to learn just like de facto a lot of military stuff at DLI that, you know, isn't relevant in everyday conversation or even everyday like thought. Sure. Um, but beyond that, unless some, that's that's like a serious recommendation. If you could somehow afford it or like pay scholarships or whatever, like go do that because it's incredible. But beyond that, it is, I think, unfortunately, the truth that immersion is sort of the key. I don't see a way around that being mm-hmm. the reality of how to learn another language. That doesn't mean you have to go live in a place because right. it's hard in a lot of cases. Like I can't go live in Iran, right? Most people can't go live in Iran or Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can hear the language quite a lot. And there is... There's a movie that Antonio Banderas was in that has like a very funny clip at the beginning of this where he is sort of, he's like a Moor or something and he gets captured by some Nordic type folk. And it's, it's, it's oh, 13 Nights. Is that it? Yeah. And yeah. it's like at the beginning, it's like he's hearing just gobbledygook. Right. Right. I remember and they this. flash yeah. and he's hearing the word for fire. And then they yeah. flash and he's hearing, oh, the fire is not warm enough. And then they flash and he's like, oh, he's hearing everything. He yeah. didn't learn. He wasn't, he's a cat. He's a, prisoner of war functionally he's not like studying right right that's that's probably contrived in like not necessarily the most realistic thing <laughs> but there is directionally it, for, yeah yeah as if you're hearing as much of a language as you can whether you can listen to it so to this like as far as keeping up languages right so i i basically don't know how to do anymore i can sort of figure it out and i can i could definitely read it relatively easily because mm-hmm. you, know, you want to read but i it's very hard to use in america there now there are more afghans here after right afghanistan fell but um, you don't run into like large populations of Pashto speakers running around. So it's hard to practice. Farsi is a little bit easier. I uh, just probably knew Farsi better for a lot of reasons, but it's, it's not, I'm not as good at it now as I used to be, but I will say like in the last few months, right. I went to a, uh, like a screening of a Persian movie and the first 20 minutes, I was like, there were English subtitles, whatever. But the first 20 minutes, you know, I said, well, I understand this. I understand that legitimately after half an hour, I was like, oh, I understand 70% of this. Mm. It was just like being reminded of what it sounds mm-hmm. like. And I think that that holds true for when you're initially acquiring a language for sure. You just have to get used to what it sounds like. The rhythms, the rise and the fall, all of that matters, like especially in like a tonal language like Chinese or something. Right. You just, 100%. There's, no, there's no other way to do that than just hearing it all the time. And if you're studying a language that has access to, you know, music and actually I think music's really hard, but that's just a personal thing. Um, but film, right, or TV mm-hmm. or media or news or all that sort of stuff, you'll just you'll hear it, you'll hear it, you'll hear it. And as long as you, it's not just like purely passive, like you know, you put on a podcast while you're cleaning your house, but you're not really listening to that. Right. If you're if you're actually sitting there and saying, Well, I'm gonna hear this, regardless of how much of it I comprehend, that is going to get you there. Right. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that. Uh, this is a harder, but it's it was a big focus at DLI, which is that you speaking is the best way to learn a language where possible, when possible, because I use the word conjuring because it feels like magic <laughs> at some point, but like conjuring another yep. language is so much harder yes. than just intaking it, right? Yes. Um, and more uncomfortable, which I think is why a lot of people put yeah, it off. more comfortable right? for sure, yeah. And because you feel stupid, you're like, oh, I said this wrong. I said that wrong. Yeah. I, I have met very few people in my life who spoke other languages who were like mad or like making fun or like whatever. They, even if they did, it's a good spirit because you make fun of their English. If, English, if they weren't super proficient in English, I'm like, that's fine because things are funny. Languages are funny. Yeah. Um, but you, you really do have to practice speaking. Or rather, I think that 
practicing speaking will like vastly speed up one's language acquisition. Yeah. That was an interesting part of the book. Actually, it reminds me, you talked about this, that even though your job as a Dizzo would be basically just listening and then translating it into English, but you made a point of speaking a lot and even writing. I, I know at one point, like you were doing a lot of writing and I don't know if it was Dottie or an postulator, but that wasn't really required. That wasn't something you were expected to do too much, I guess, but you, you wanted to do it. And I think you, it helped you instead of just all that input, you had a lot of output as well. Right. Yeah. I, so it's like speaking is a requirement, right? So the, mm-hmm. maybe you know what this is, maybe some of your listeners do, but the defense language proficiency test or the DLPT is like how the military and plenty of other like non-military, but governmental associations assess uh, language proficiency. Mm-hmm. And the scoring system is weird, but uh, simplified, you have to get a two, a two, and a one plus, and that's in listening and reading and speaking to graduate DLI. So there's a lower requirement for speaking. Mm-hmm. Like a one plus is basically like a middle schooler. But yeah, you're not, you know, if you get a job as a translator or interpreter, right, okay, you have to do much better. But for your average linguist, it's just hearing it or maybe reading it. But there's still a huge emphasis on it in the education, but even though it's known by instructors and known by you going in that yeah, I don't have to do as well speaking. You still practice it all the time. Your whole yeah. hours of speaking practice because yeah, putting it out there, like there's no faster way to figure out whether you know a grammar rule than right. to try and see that grammar rule. Right. Like, do I in fact know past tense? Well, can I conjugate the verb? Nope, sure yep. can't do it. Okay. I always find that it's the number one way to find out where your holes are because you're about to say mm-hmm. a thing. You're like, oh, I actually don't know how to say that. I've never tried to. And now I know I don't want to say that. And so boom, you go look up how to do that. And then I I think that momentary frustration and tension too, it kind of, it adds an emotional element to it that makes then remembering that thing you just looked up that much easier. Right. Right. Because you're you're telling your brain, this is important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part to your point about the passive listening to a podcast, even though that is a form of potential immersion, which can be powerful. If it's just passive, you're basically telling your brain at a subconscious level, this doesn't matter. This is not important. Right. Yeah. And so it's not going to grab onto it the same way. Yeah. It's sort of like another language. So I, I studied biology when I got out of the military at Columbia. And science is like functioning just as a different language, sort of, to a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I would do this. I had recorded lectures and I'd try and listen to them. Or I, I would, I would tell myself, oh, I'm listening to this. You know, I'm listening on a train when I'm moving around New York City and all this stuff. And it was just such a huge waste of time. Mm. And, I, and unfortunately, I didn't realize that till later, but like it absolutely was. And then I went to medical school, which is learning another language. Medicine is learning another language. Well, and Latin yeah. too, right? <laughs> yeah. And, but yeah, like you can listen to doctors talk. And if you've ever you know, been in a doctor's office right. and talk to a doctor, you're like, what are they talking uh, about? Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, that, yeah, the, the passivity of it, of like trying to just like read a book, read a textbook or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, like that's probably not gonna work. Now reading a book, right? So like I have a, a copy of Harry Potter and Farsi. Mm. Yeah, read that because it's like full of how people talk and how people it's not like just like sitting there reading a textbook. I think most of us are listening to a podcast, our eyes or our ears are gonna glaze over. Right. It's gonna miss out on so much and we won't be able to say this is important. This is important. And it's boring. I mean, that, that's yeah. the nice thing about doing something Harry Potter. It's like it's fun. Also, right. you probably already know the storyline basically. You know the story, you, you know, know the context. Names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just to kind of sum up here, go to a intensive sort of immersion-based institution, if you can, actively immerse yourself. And that's a big part of what I do on my this podcast, my site, everything is, I call it anywhere immersion. Bring the language to you, wherever you are, which is easier now than it's ever been mm-hmm. for almost any language. What else would you add to that list? 
Actually, there are there are people who have uploaded to the internet some of the DLI curriculums for different languages. Okay. So, yeah, I I fairly confident that French is out there, and I know that Dari is out there because I have it. Um, and it, it's not. I don't, I'm pretty sure it's not illegal. It's just like stuff like PDF files and stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. still, and none of it's classified or anything like that. It doesn't have to be the DLI one, but if you if you were able to find a curriculum that says, yeah, you're starting from nothing mm-hmm. and it is sort of focused on how natural language learning works, right? So if you think about like little kids, little kids probably speak in present tense most of the time. Right. They don't get concepts of time and it's complicated and they maybe don't even remember what happened yesterday and they certainly don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So like all their sentences will be in present tense. And yeah, they sound weird, but they're kids. Who cares? Well, you're functioning a child when you're learning another language. Sorry, but you are. And so like, just do that. Like you find something you learn present tense. You say, okay, I'm just going to speak and think in present tense mm-hmm. for a month or for however long it is. And it's like, okay, well, what do I think about, you know, most often after that for me, it would be past tense. Like I think about what I did yesterday and I want to tell somebody what I did yesterday. Okay. I'm going to learn that. And you say, oh, well, then future is the next one, obviously, right? These mm-hmm. are the sentences. You say that. And then, and then you can move on. But I, I've seen a decent amount of like language learning material that maybe tries to allow you to like do more complicated stuff up front. I think like hearing that, yes. Immersing yourself in that, yes. Do hear it. Do hear complicated grammatical structures and like high level vocabulary. Cool. But trying to like acquire that very early on seems to me to be sort of self-defeating because you are mm-hmm. going to say, Wow, this is so much harder. And then you're not going to want to do it in right. the first place. And it's also probably not that useful. Mm, that's a good point. And I think you those constraints are super helpful to limit down the amount mm-hmm. you're trying to chew it. You know, it's just small bites, right? Trying right. to eat the whole elephant in one go. It's it's just, yeah, you're gonna get indigestion and quit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> is there anything you would do differently if you were to start learning Dari or posture or any language from scratch today? Um, probably use Omki. You're familiar? It's a flashcard system. Yep, space repetition. Uh, space repetition. Yeah, it's, it's so it actually means memorization in Japanese. So it's a very aptly named app. <laughs> oh, neat! I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I've been using it for years. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. So space repetition writ large is is the correct answer. Mm-hmm. This is this is well borne out in most educational theory, but it's a definitively language learning theory. If anyone's not familiar, the the short reason it's super cool is like let's say you want to learn a thousand words in language you make a thousand flashcards you in your like silly human mind will say oh i have to do those thousand flashcards every day and that's impossible space repetition there's a program that will allow that that learns like okay do you know this word do you know not the word so out of a thousand flashcards after about a week you might only have to do like a hundred a day or even Mm -hmm. less than that but you're still absolutely going to see them and you're going to learn them and you're going to be sure to be tested on them over time, which right. is really important. I didn't learn about Anki until I was in med school. And I mean, it's really, again, med school, there's a ton of vocabulary and like discrete facts. So it was really useful for that. If I had had that in language school, I really think it would have been even a, like mm. just a huge leg up because at some point, if you're truly trying to become fluent and not just conversant, you do just have to sit down and rote memorize words. Like there's not a lot to be done about that. And something like Anki or some other spaced repetition formula helps so right. much. Yeah, so much more efficient. And so what much. I love about it is that it, it focuses on the things you don't know yet. Right, right. Instead of just like rereading a page of a book or something, you're wasting so mm-hmm. much time on stuff you already know. Mm-hmm. And it's familiar. It's comfortable. Yeah. And Anki and very scientifically with their algorithms, it's like, okay, here's the thing you said you don't know very well. And we're going to show you that again more often. 
and more right. frequently. Here's things you said are easy and you know, we're like not going to show you for a long right. time, yeah. if yeah, ever. Right. It. Yeah. And it's, it's like a really robust program now. And mm-hmm. it's even better is that. So if I tried to use it 10 years ago, it would have been really hard, but now there's, you know, there's all kinds of YouTube videos, all kinds of guides online of how to like really, really, really tailor it to your needs. Yeah. Super and customizable. Yeah. And it's free as far as I know. So this is where I have a little bit of contention here. So it's free to use on all platforms except for iOS. We yeah. iOS users have to pay $22, <laughs> right. I think it is, for the app. So we subsidize yeah. everyone else. Right. But I'm happy to do it. It's well worth the money. Uh, mm-hmm. I use it every single day. And oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, I would, I, I'm not paid. I'm not affiliated with them, but like I. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't get any money either. So yeah, free, free Anki uh, plug here, but. Yeah, definitely. It can be a little overwhelming, I think. I mean, I think yes. real talk, because it is so customizable and you can do so much with it. I mean, you can just open a list of just a simple front back card and that's simple, mm-hmm. but you start to get into like with Japanese specifically or Mandarin, just what I mostly use it for and promote it for. You could have, you know, recognition cards and production cards. And mm-hmm. so every time you create a flashcard, it actually creates two different flashcards. Anyway, it can get complicated, but it's well worth it. To your point, there's tutorials online, there's videos. Yeah, the the true hack would be just Google like, or, or yeah, look up on the internet like Anki Medical School because basically mm. every medical student in the country uses it now and they medical students tend to be optimizers. Mm-hmm. So you you can find, yeah, there's like the content is tailored to medicine, but you'll find like wildly helpful guides because mm-hmm. so many medical students who tend to be overachievers have used it. That's real. I hadn't thought about that. That makes mm-hmm. so much sense. Yeah. yeah. Super, super helpful. In the medical side, I'm just curious now because I haven't looked at any of this before. Do they talk about creating cards where you have to like write the answer or produce it or any of that kind of stuff, or is it? Um, sometimes. So the for the most part nowadays, it's been around long enough that people have just created a ton of decks, mm. and they, they tend to just be recognition because your your boards in medicine are just recognition. Gotcha. Um, at least to pass medical school, there's some specialties in medicine that have oral boards where you would have to you know sort of produce stuff, but that that comes with just like the years of working rotations and stuff yeah 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 yeah. there's nothing but the the boards and step they're called step step one two and three it's just recognition mm. it's just- we should say that's another powerful part i think of the kind of anki ecosystem is there's all these decks that people have made right pre-created yeah i have yeah. a i have like a five thousand word farsi deck mm. it's it's got sub decks it's really nice right it's like chapters mm. and like what the content's going to be it's like oh here's food and here's the news right and I didn't make any of that. Somebody else made it and I just found it. Yeah. I will say that I have found personally making your own decks to be extremely Wait, powerful. In, in, a, in a, I'm not saying don't use the pre-made. I think those can kind of can be complimentary, right? But as you're kind of going through your immersion activities and reading and you know listening to news and listening to podcasts, watching shows on Netflix, picking out words and phrases and structures that you find personally interesting and relevant and then making your own cards, just the act of making the card amazingly i find to be extremely helpful in remembering the thing because yeah. it's in a way it's a form of production too is you're, you're actually oh, it is, yeah. writing it and typing it and you know. yeah yeah I, I tutor medical students these days and yeah i i always tell them like you're not going to listen to me and that's fine because <laughs> there's a lot of material yeah. but yeah i say basically what i wind up saying is like use the stuff that exists fine that's super efficient but if you find yourself like getting stuck on certain things, stop trying to use their stuff and make your own. Right. Because right. just just the simple act of making your own card. Some of it I think is sort of a hack of like, oh, well, I'll recognize what I made. And maybe that's true, mm-hmm. but I, I think the majority of it is that yeah, me putting it into my own words or construct or concept is going to be a better form of learning. Right. 
it's back to what we talked about earlier, where you're training your brain that this is important, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. such an underappreciated, I think, part of learning is your yeah. brain doesn't care if your conscious brain thinks, oh, this would be nice to know, or I should, I need this for a test, or I need to list to pass my DLPT, you said, yeah, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't matter, like, it's your subconscious brain needs to think this is important. And right. unfortunately, you're on your unconscious brain, mostly to pass that filter of importance. It's, mm-hmm. it's the four F's, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. <laughs> yeah, the, the word for economics, your brain doesn't really care about. <laughs> right, right. So just kind of that final words here, is there any words of encouragement you have for a language learner who I think in the most often case of real frustration, I find there's two groups. It's the brand new learner who's looking at this mountain of work ahead of them and they're overwhelmed and they're not even sure if they want to start it because it just looks so overwhelming. So that's group one. And then group two, they've been at it a while and they've reached sort of the dreaded intermediate plateau where mm-hmm. they've got a decent level. They can kind of communicate, still a lot of holes, but they're still far, far from full fluency. So what would you tell someone in one of these two groups? The first one, it's going to be a horrible cliche, but I, having gone through two different forms, language school twice and then medical school, uh, I think it holds. Yeah, like eating the whole mountain would be really, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Eating a tiny bit of the mountain every day is significantly more achievable. So the, the cliche version of this is like, if someone told you you have to eat two pancakes a day, you'd say, okay, fine. Right. But if you skip a day, yeah, four pancakes, okay, whatever. You skip five days. Mm-hmm. I eat all the pancakes from the day prior. Like all of a sudden I have to eat 20 pancakes. I don't want to eat 20 pancakes. Right. And even if I do eat those 20 pancakes, I'm going to feel like garbage afterward. Mm. So that is like, like tiny, tiny little chips off the block um, and, and consistency for the right. new rich learner. Like that's going to be the most important thing. Yeah. And this is especially true with Anki, by the way. Yeah. If you if you skip your daily Anki reviews, then those will start piling up, and then you got to eat all those. That's, and that's that's where the analogy becomes true to life, which is that in medical school you're doing like hundreds and hundreds of cards a day if you're using Anki. Mm. Yeah, you miss a day, and it's like, well, now I'm staring down the barrel of a thousand. Mm. I don't want to do that. For the intermediate, I think I would have to wind up saying just do as much talking as you can. Mm-hmm. And there are I can't remember any of the names of them right now, but there are lots of websites that will pair like Italki or. Yeah. yeah, that will yeah. pair you with a, a native speaker from another country, and you and it's usually it tends to be free because you're just treating human goodwill back and forth. Mm-hmm. You're going to talk to them; they're going to correct you. They're going to talk to you; you're going to correct them. Because even if you don't like feel that you're an English teacher, you know when something's right or wrong. Right. So you get into like really high level oratory. You know when someone uses the wrong grammar or they put words in the wrong order or yep. whatever. Yeah, every um, native speaker knows the what. They don't know the why. Right, right, you right. Train to know the why. Yeah. There are these like fascinating rules in English too, right? If you list adjectives in an order, right? You yep. have different categories. Like it's like number, color, yep. size. And like they go in a certain order and none of us know those. We don't. Not consciously. We know that it, yes. Yeah. It sounds weirder when you say the, it sounds like, you know, if I said there are four big blue birds or if I said big blue four birds or something like that, right? Like right. it gets really weird and you know that and you can help that other person. And then they maybe they can say after that, like, oh, I have to go look up the actual rule behind this. Fine. Mm-hmm. And the same thing will happen to you that maybe the other person can't tell you exactly why what you said is weird, but they can say, no, no, that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what I would say more naturally. Here's, how, here's what yeah. I'd say. Here's how I would say it. Here are some other examples of like where this comes up, something like that. Right. That is, I think like most people, especially if they're seeking out that sort of environment, like they're going to be able to do that because they're interested in language in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. That to me seems the best option because of like time and money and all those sorts of things. Right. Beyond that, it would be like, yeah, go to the military <laughs> Institute for it because sure. 
that that level of immersion is going to if you're already at an intermediate level man they're gonna they're gonna take you way up here yeah i've never been i it's one of my kind of bucket list dreams but yeah um yeah someday well ian thank you very much for your time and yeah sharing your advice and your story and for writing a very enjoyable book highly recommended what the taliban told me i'll put links in the show notes uh, if people want to know or learn more about you and your story, other than just reading the book, I'll, I'll put a link to the Atlantic article as well. Where else can people go to follow your yeah. journey? Uh, I have a website. It's ianlfritz.com. Um, or if you just Google you know, my name plus Twitter, you'll find me. Uh, it's mostly talking about books on Twitter because I mostly love books these days. It's those sorts of things. I've got a contact form on my website. If something I said here, you're like, wait a minute, what were you talking about? I'm happy to try and provide an answer to it. Cool. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, good luck with the launch. Hope it goes well. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers. Have a, Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Language Mastery Show. Again, you can find show notes at languagemastery.com forward slash show. Before you continue on with your day, take a quick moment to choose one small tip or takeaway from today's episode to apply in your life. Listening to podcasts is a great first step, but the real magic only happens when you translate information into action. Also, if you want to help keep this show going, there are three key things you can do to help. Number one, leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you use to listen to podcasts. Number two, Join my free newsletter called Language Mastery Monday, in which you get weekly tips, tools, and resources for building an effective language immersion environment anywhere in the world. And number three, if you're learning Japanese or Mandarin Chinese, check out my detailed immersion guides called Master Japanese and Master Mandarin. Both provide step-by-step instructions for how to immerse yourself in Japanese or Chinese right where you are. Learn more at JapaneseMastery.com and ChineseMastery.com. And you can use the code SHOW, that's S-H-O-W, to get 25% off either guide. All right, we'll see you next week for another episode of the Language Mastery Show. Until then, happy learning.